Tonight on PBS News Weekend, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visits earthquake-ravaged Turkey, where search and rescue efforts are winding down. When you see the extent of the damage, the number of buildings, the number of apartments, the number of homes that have been destroyed, it's going to take a massive effort uh, to rebuild. But simply put, the United States is here. Then, as some companies consider switching to a four-day work week, the arguments for and against the change. And Stephanie Sy speaks with Howard University's swimming coach on the success of the only swim team at a historically black college. Good evening, I'm John Yang. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey tonight for a first-hand look at the devastation from the earthquakes that hit the region nearly two weeks ago. Blinken took with him a U.S. pledge of an additional $100 million in disaster aid to help the country rebuild. Sorry to on this occasion. Words of consolation for the Turkish foreign minister before the two headed out on a helicopter tour of the destruction in southern Turkey. It's uh, really hard to put it into words. You see buildings still standing and then buildings collapse. The search and rescue, unfortunately, is coming to an end. The recovery uh, operation is on. And then there'll be a massive rebuilding effort. But that rebuilding effort can't start until mountains of debris are cleared away. Tens of thousands of buildings were destroyed. And that work is slow as bulldozer operators sift through debris for bodies, hoping to give grieving families a sense of closure. It's very important for our people to have a grave. The family says, find a piece of them so we can have a grave. Nearly two weeks after the quakes hit, the death toll is still climbing and workers are finding fewer and fewer signs of life under the rubble. An untold number of people are still unaccounted for. In Syria, aid has been slow to arrive and held up at the border. Some families have banded together. Before, we were four families in one house. Now we are some 12 families. We uncover ourselves to keep them warm. We offer them anything we can. Our home didn't collapse. It was just damaged, thank God. The World Health Organization estimates 26 million people urgently need help with shelter, medicine, and psychological support. Survivors in both Syria and Turkey experienced enormous trauma. 17-year-old Taha Erdem thought he would die beneath the rubble. I think this is the last video I will ever shoot for you. I am dead if I am not wrong. His family was trapped nearby. When I was under the rubble, I was yelling, Taha, Taha. Neither my voice was going across to Taha, nor was Taha's voice coming across to me. All the Erdem children survived, but many others did not. One activist honored them with balloons. I wanted this activity to be called my last present to children. Every time we tie a balloon, my heart hurts. We have tied 1,000, 1,500 balloons so far, but we will hopefully continue until we reach all parts of the city, until we reach every home of the children who lost their lives. Balloons are for the living, too. At this humanitarian camp, young survivors played with volunteers this weekend. 
and learn to cope with all they've lost. In the nearby Syrian capital of Damascus, state media says that Israeli airstrikes on residential areas have left at least five people dead and more than a dozen wounded. The strikes destroyed several apartment buildings and left a gaping crater in a street. Emergency responders combed through the rubble for survivors. There's been no Israeli comment, but Israel has previously acknowledged targeting Iranian-backed militant groups in Syria. In Memphis, Tennessee, one person is dead and 10 others injured in a pair of overnight shootings. Police believe the two incidents are connected. No arrests have been made, but police have identified several persons of interest. Memphis is a city still on edge after last month's fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols. And the incident adds to the mass shootings across the country in recent days. Six people were killed and one injured in rural Mississippi on Friday. Three students died and five were injured on Michigan State University's campus Monday night. Michigan State resumes classes tomorrow despite some calls for a delay. And actor Richard Belzer has died. Belzer began his career as a stand-up comedian, but he became better known as the wisecracking TV police detective John Munch on Homicide, Life on the Street, and Law and Order SVU. You had one hell of a run, Sergeant Munch. Did I? I don't know where it all went. My friend? Richard Belzer was 78 years old. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, the selling of personal data collected by mental health apps and a conversation with the coach of the last remaining swim team at an historically black college. This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. In 1926, Henry Ford instituted a five-day, 40-hour work week with no loss of pay for having Saturdays off, what's now the standard in American workplaces. Now there's a push to consider a four-day, 32-hour work week, again with no loss in pay. But how practical is that? Earlier, I spoke with Daniel Hammermesh, an economist at the University of Texas, and Joe O'Connor, who helped develop an international pilot program to test a four-day work week. I asked O'Connor about the results of that pilot program. A four-day week is a good idea because we've seen in the trials that have taken place in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and elsewhere all over the world over the course of the last year, that most of the companies participating in those trials have said they plan on making the policy permanent, their revenue has either remained stable or has increased during the trial, and they've experienced that their productivity has been able to be maintained and in many cases even improved. Unsurprisingly, we saw improvements across a whole range of different well-being indicators amongst employees that participated in the trials, but it's something that can actually be better for business too. Daniel Hammermesh, is there a cost to this? I think there is. I can't believe that if, in fact, this were applied universally, even fairly broadly, that we wouldn't see a substantial decline in output and a substantial resulting decline in people's incomes. If employers could do this, my question is, why haven't they done this? Everybody would win. I just don't think they can very broadly. Joe, what do you say to that? Uh, loss of output and loss of income. 
So I would agree with Daniel that this is very much not a one-size-fits-all model. I'm not arguing that the four-day week, nine to five, should become the new normal everywhere. Because as we know, there are many sectors, many industries, many companies that don't have a five-day nine to five. What I'm arguing is that most companies today who operate on a five-day nine to five basis could move to a four-day week without necessarily needing to increase headcount and without necessarily damaging on their business performance priorities or productivity. When they attack inefficiencies like overlong and unnecessary meetings, distractions in the workday, processes that are outdated or inefficient, and poor use of technology, that they can go a long way to offering a shorter work week to their employees without undermining the bottom line. What about Daniel's other point, that if this is such a great idea, why haven't businesses already done it? Well, the reason why businesses haven't done it is that before the pandemic, it wasn't acceptable in society or in business this idea that you could run a global company from your kitchen table, this idea that you could be as productive at home as you could be in the office. And it took a big game changer like the pandemic to dislodge a lot of these cultural and societal norms. I believe the same is true with the shorter working week. This has opened the eyes of leaders and of managers that there are different ways of working that are possible. Daniel, you say it's a trade-off. Where do the benefits become uh, so great that they outweigh the loss of productivity and the loss of income, or do they? It depends on people's preferences. Some people might be willing to take a, let's say, five or eight percent cut in income to have an extra 20 percent of leisure time. But the point is that there are a lot of industries, as Joe would acknowledge, where this doesn't work. Manufacturing cars on an assembly line, which is the archetypal model we have, I don't see why working fewer hours is going to get any more and I think substantially less output. One other thing to stress though, and Joe is right, there's been a huge trend already before the pandemic toward more four-day work. I mean, it went from 1% in 1973 to over 6% in 2018. And I fully expect it to go up. And Joe's organization fostering that, I think is a good thing if we can do it. Joe, there are some models in the United States where it's a compressed week. It's four days, but 40 hours. Um, what do you think about that? The difficulty I would have with that model in a lot of cases, particularly when you're talking about knowledge-based or you know work that used to be maybe primarily office-based now is hybrid or remote, I'm not persuaded or convinced that people are as productive in their ninth or tenth hour on a Wednesday necessarily as they might be in their first or second hour on a Friday. I'm also not persuaded that from a burnout perspective, that people are likely to be better rested after four 10-hour days than they might be after five eight-hour days. So I think the research is not conclusive that this is something that necessarily in lots of job types is good for business and good for people. And the other point I would make is that it overlooks the power of the incentive, the ability to be able to get some of their time back in exchange for the same pay, that people are incredibly focused and motivated and driven while they're at work in order to achieve the goals and the targets of the company. Daniel, what do you say to that, especially his point about uh, efficiency uh, and productivity actually sort of having diminishing returns? I think he's quite correct on that, that it does. On the other hand, even a 10-hour day, the ninth and 10th hours, people are not doing nothing. So I think this would keep up almost the output we now have. But the crucial point to note is that people like bunching leisure. In some industries, it's been very successful. 
in medical hospitals for 12-hour days, three days a week. That's a full-time. And that bunches very well, it accords very well with the demands of clients not to have the patient shifted from one nurse or one doctor to the next three times a day. So I think all of this depends on what is appropriate. I doubt there are that many industries where, in fact, four days, eight hours a day will leave us as well off. Daniel Hammermesh of the University of Texas and Joe O'Connor of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There are thousands of mental health apps available on your phone or computer. They promise all kinds of services, including virtual therapy sessions, mood trackers, and meditation guides. They can be helpful and affordable tools, but what happens with users' personal information? William Brangham has more. Demand for mental health care soared during the pandemic, and many Americans turned to these software-based virtual health and wellness apps for care. To sign up, users are often asked to fill out their personal and medical histories and answer mental health surveys, much like you would at a doctor's office. But there is little federal oversight to keep that data private. A recent report from Duke University found that data brokers were selling information that identified people by their mental health diagnoses, including depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder. Many brokers removed personal information, but some included names and even addresses of individuals seeking care. Justin Sherman is a senior fellow at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy. He runs their data brokerage project and oversaw this recent report. Justin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I imagine that people would be quite alarmed to know that data brokers were out there selling this information, especially if it was connected to their names. Um, can you give us a sense of how specific is the data that is being sold? Absolutely. We uncovered data brokers selling a range of data about all kinds of mental health conditions um, dealt with by uh, Americans, ranging from depression and anxiety to PTSD, OCD, uh, people battling uh, trauma, and even uh, actually people who had suffered strokes. If you imagine, uh, you know, a, a spreadsheet with rows, right, perhaps it was something like how many people in a zip code do we think have depression? And they might have the underlying data, but the broker was not itself selling people's names. We also found cases, though, where there would be names attached, there would be address information or email uh, information, and even data on race and ethnicity and how many children are in the home. Can you just help me understand this marketplace? What is the value of selling this information and then reselling it on, on the marketplace? The reality is that most Americans assume that uh, their health data is protected anywhere, everywhere, all the time. Uh, but unfortunately, that's just not true. There are a range of companies who were not covered by the narrow health privacy regulations we have. And so uh, they are free legally to collect uh, and even share and sell this kind of health data, um, which enables a range of companies who can't get at this normally advertising firms, big pharma, even health insurance companies to buy up this data en masse to do things like run ads, to profile consumers, 
to make determinations potentially about health plan pricing. And the data brokers enable these companies to get around health regulations to get that information in the first place. Let's just say someone is watching this or reads your report and is concerned that they might have some information out there that they want to protect. Can they call the companies and say, do not share it? Can they get those companies to delete that data? What can a consumer do to protect themselves? There are some places in the United States where a consumer can tell a company uh, in certain scenarios to not sell their information. California, for example, under its state privacy rules, allows consumers to do this. Um, but not every state has these rules. We don't have these rules federally to apply across the country. Uh, and the real challenge here is that most people aren't aware this data uh, is being collected and sold on them in the first place. And even if you knew it was, would you know every data broker to go to to tell them to stop selling the information, right? So the obscurity of the marketplace and the fact that many of these companies operate in the shadows makes it really, really hard uh, for consumers themselves to be able to do anything without stronger privacy regulations from the government. Do you know of any any initiatives or effort by the government to try to, to tighten those privacy regulations? There are some efforts uh, underway. So the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the FTC, for example, recently took action against GoodRx, which is a large online prescription provider and telehealth company, uh, because GoodRx was falsely advertising to its users that it was regulated by health uh, privacy laws when it wasn't, and it was secretly sharing users' health data with Facebook and Google and other companies. Uh, and so there is some space for regulators to come in and say, this is deceptive to consumers, this is not something that should be happening. There have also been a couple of bills at the federal level to address this, but we still have these privacy battles ongoing in Congress, and it's an open question uh, you know, if we're going to get there. All right, Justin Sherman at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The sport of swimming is dominated by white athletes. Today, only 2% of all college swimmers are black. But one school is trying to change that. Since 2016, Howard University has been the only historically black school with a swim team. Stephanie Sai has more on Howard's push to bring more diversity to the sport. This week, Howard University's swim team is set to compete in their conference championship. If they win, it will be the first title in more than 30 years. Howard is home to about a third of all black college swimmers, but the team hopes their success will inspire more black Americans to take the dive. Howard swim coach Nick Askew joins me now. Coach Nick, thank you so much for joining us. How are you feeling going into the conference championship? Stephanie, I'm feeling super good right now. Our team has done the work and they're so excited to be able to be in Geneva, Ohio at the Spire Institute and just have some fun. I just want to ask you about this team and what makes it so special, because I hear that you have quite a crowd showing up at your meets. Yeah, our home events are just that. They are events. We took a lot of time thinking about how can we get more people to come out and support the swimming and diving team. Number one is music. you got to have some music to keep the energy going in the crowd. 
So we have an on-deck DJ for all of our home meets, and we've been doing that from the very beginning. Number two, you got to offer some food. Swim meets are hot. They're long. You don't want to lose your, your uh, supporters because they were hungry. And then number three, the thing that we work super, super hard on at, at day in and day out is making sure that we can deliver a product that people would be interested in. We've got to be good enough to win. We've got to be good enough to compete against the top teams to make it exciting. So you're not just a coach, you're a one-man marketing team, and, and it seems to have, have worked. I do want to talk about what is going on um, in the world of swimming when it comes to HBCUs, because from what I understand, it's only Howard at this point that has this program. Why is that? Yeah, we're the standalone program. We're glad to be that flagship. We're hopeful. We're praying that other HBCUs are taking note of the things that we're able to do and capable of accomplishing and are inspired to bring their programs back because prior to the 80s, there were 20 plus HBCUs that had swimming and diving programs. There are so many young black and brown children out there who are aspiring to swim at a collegiate level and want to have an HBCU experience. Beyond HBCUs, why do you see such low participation in competitive swimming among Black Americans? And you kind of alluded to this. You feel like Blacks have been shut out. What do you mean by that? Go into a little bit of the history. Absolutely. We have to be honest about the the lack of access. Um, you know, when when there was integration and people that lived within the inner city were mostly minorities and the people who moved out were mostly white. And when they moved out of the area, the facilities that were there for public access started to wear down um, to the point where they could not be operational. And then on the contrast, you had country clubs opening up that, you know, the minorities were not able to get to, and they were also denied membership. Um, you go even farther back, Black people from Africa were swimmers. They, did, they swam for their livelihood because most of the civilizations were on waterways. And then the transatlantic slave trade, they were taking from their homeland and they were enslaved. And once they entered into the Americas, the civilizations were also on waterways, but they were seen as ways of escape by our ancestral people who could swim at the time. But they were, they were severely punished for trying to escape. So as a loved one, of course, as a mother, a father, or a, a sibling, you're telling your family to stay away from the water. And then, you know, fast forward into modern day history, being denied access uh, on such a grand scale uh, really, really diminished the amount of people of color and other minorities that actually can swim or will even pursue competitive swim opportunities. It sounds like, Coach Nick, you're on much more of a mission than just winning the championship next yeah. week. It sounds like you really have a point that you want to make. Yeah, absolutely. What we do and what we talk about as a program, as an organization, is we need to be that representation to dispel the myth that Blacks don't swim. We actually do, and we can do it very well, just like anyone else who has an opportunity and access. What would you like to see the future be, not only for the swim program at your college, but at other colleges, um, and historically Black colleges in particular? Yeah, you know, swimming is based on time, a fraction of a second. So every little bit, every small step in the right direction is success for us. And we're, we're a very um, exciting team. We, we like to have fun. And we'd love for people to be inspired by that. 
Uh, we'd love for people to be able to see us as a representation of things that were not in our wheelhouse to be able to accomplish. Um, we want to be that inspiration for them in all aspects of life, not just in swimming. Well, I wish you and your team the best of luck. Coach Nick Askew, the Director of Tennis, Swimming and Diving at Howard University. Thank you. Stephanie, thank you so much. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Sunday. On Monday, we begin a series marking one year since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. In the first installment, Nick Schifrin reports on the drone war over the embattled nation. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. Have a good week.